Most every year, a couple of times a year, we do what uh, all sane people do. We pack our eight people in a little minivan and drive 20 hours across the country and spend a week cramped in a small space with lots of other people uh, in our family. And uh, we just had the opportunity to do that this past week out in Myrtle Beach and had a really sweet time. But, you know, it is a really long way. Somebody said that Houston is a long way from anything interesting. And, uh, you know, we love our city. It's a great place. We love being here. We love our church family. But, uh, yeah, it's a long way from a lot of things. And so 20 hours in the car, and you can just remember the long road trips that you had and the most frequently asked question that, comes up in almost every household is, when are we going to be there? How much longer? How much further is it? Are we there yet? And uh, I'm sure we heard our share of that. It wasn't too bad. Our kids are a little older now. They're a little bit better. But uh, you've heard that plenty of times. And maybe you've asked that. Maybe you've asked it in your Christian life, in your spiritual journey. Maybe you've asked that question in your struggle against your sin. Maybe you've asked that question in your pursuit of doing something for God's glory. How long is this road going to be hard and difficult? How long will we get there? When are we finally going to turn the corner on this thing? When will I see victory? When will I see growth? When will I see the spread of the kingdom of Christ like I long to see? And uh, we live our lives on a journey, a long journey. And the Lord has ordained it this way. In His wisdom, God did not make Christianity an immediate transition and translation into the eternal kingdom, but a journey toward a destination. To say it another way, John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, not The Religious Rapture. God left us here on a path a journey, and if you know the story of Pilgrim's Progress, you know that the pilgrim had many perils along the way he had to face, many difficulties, also many encouragements, amen? Many blessings, many people that God put in His path to help Him along the way. There were many obstacles and many enemies, but there was much help from the Lord. So, what does our journey as Christians look like. And I'm going to talk in this morning particularly to those of you who are Christians. That is, those of you who have come to be regenerated by the grace of God and converted from an old life of living for yourself to recognizing that you are a sinner before a holy God and recognizing that Jesus Christ is your only hope. Receiving Him as your Lord and Savior and now you're on a new path. You're on a a journey. You've left the city of destruction and now you're on the path to the celestial city. You're on your way to heaven. Some of you, that may not be true for you. You may never have given your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be sitting here and all of your life, maybe you've been religious or maybe you've been around church off and on, but you've never really come to a place where you've been broken by your sin and where the Lord Jesus became sweet to you, where the Gospel just washed over you with such a power that transformed your heart. And I hope that today, today will be the day when you will hear the Word of God and you will come under conviction 
that Jesus Christ is your only hope and you'll turn your life over to Him and follow Him and start this journey that we call the Christian life. But I want to speak to you today who are Christians, you in particular, you who are on this path, you who are making this journey. What does that journey look like? What do the Scriptures teach us about that? Well, there are many passages that directly exhort us about the Christian life. And we thank God for those passages. Speak directly to how we should live, how we should think, what we should do, who our Lord is. There are other passages, though, that give us picturesque instruction. Instruction as to what the Christian life looks like through pictures and stories. So much of the Bible is is story, isn't it? Stories, stories, stories. Why? Because in stories, God reveals something of Himself that you can only know through story. Because, tell you the truth, friends, you and I are all in the middle of one great story that God has for the universe. And each one of you, your life is a story, a small arc within that grand overarching story that God is working out throughout history. You're in a story. Your story right now as a Christian is the story of a person on a journey from where you were to where you will be. And the Bible has stories like this. Several New Testament passages illustrate this story from the Old Testament. Of course, much of the Old Testament is given to us in story. And those stories have a meaning for us and a purpose for us if we'll if we'll hear them the way that we're supposed to. And, and a, a few passages in the New Testament really give us the key interpretive tool to understanding and unlocking the meaning of those stories of the Old Testament. One of those passages is the first one that I'd like you to turn to this morning. We're going to look at three texts. And the first one is, if I can get it right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So would you turn there with me for a few brief minutes as we begin? 1 Corinthians 10, and let's read the first 11 verses. I'll read it out loud if you'll follow along carefully. And really think about what this says. Here is the New Testament apostle giving us instructions from an Old Testament story. You'll see what story it is, and then we'll look at that story briefly as well today. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, he says in verse 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. You think of the story of Moses now, leading of the people of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness. There's a cloud. There's this Red Sea. They ate the manna that came down. They all drank, verse 4, the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You remember the story that many of them failed to believe God and enter into the promised land, right? Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did, nor be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test 
as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul is saying that those things that happened to them, happened to them for our benefit. They went through them for their benefit too, but he's emphasizing this. They they went through them and they were recorded by the holy prophets for us, for us who live in the last days or when the end of the ages has come, the fullness of time, the Bible says, when Christ has come. We're talking about that period between the first coming of Jesus as a baby in a manger and the second coming of our Lord when He returns again to bring all of history to its conclusion. This period called the last days of the age is the period for which God recorded those events long ago. They had something to say to us. They had something to reveal to us. In particular, they show us Christ, right? It says Christ was the rock that gave them water and bread. Christ is not literally the earthen uh, rock. He is the real, true source of their life. He's the one who gave them life. He is the one to whom these stories point. They go through the Red Sea, and that is their baptism, as it were. That is their entrance into uh, to the people of God and the people of Christ. These were real historical events that happened to those people long ago, but they're uniquely orchestrated by divine providence to say something to us today about the gospel. That's the way we should read our Old Testaments so the apostles teach us. There's another passage that teaches us again how to read these stories so that we can learn something for our Christian lives. And that is Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. If you want to turn over there, Hebrews and chapter 3, 1 to chapter 4, verse number 11. These would be two great passages to keep in mind, although there are many in the New Testament that help us to understand how the Old Testament applies to us. Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. All right, everyone this morning who hears my voice, consider Jesus. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. If Moses was the house, Christ is the builder. If Moses was the great leader of God's people, Christ is so much more. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a what? As a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What was Moses all about? Moses was there to be a servant in God's house to testify about future things. Things that pertain to us. And that helps us to make sense of what we read in the story of Moses. 
But verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a what? As a son. And we are His house if indeed we hold our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, now here's a quotation from Psalm, does your Bible say what Psalm it is? Psalm 95, I believe. Yeah, here's a Psalm of David. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. That's a reference back to the day of Moses when the people did not believe God and so failed to enter the promised land. He says, David says today, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For you have come, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Now he asks, verse 16, now pay attention to where what the writer of Hebrews is going to do with this Old Testament story. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who, were, who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Well, yes, of course. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were, it, they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed entered the rest, that very rest that He promised to those people, we who believed have entered it. As He said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter His rest. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now that's a reference to what? When did God finish His works? On the what day? The seventh day. God, what? He worked and then He rested. So, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, there was a rest there. Now there's a rest that Moses promises. But, verse 4, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day this way. God rested on the seventh day and all, from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So there's the rest of Moses. Excuse me, there's the rest that God rested on the seventh day. But then he said there's still a rest in Moses' day that's being promised. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, right? We're talking about 400 years after the time of Joshua. Now David is still talking about a rest that the people of God can enter into. David says so long afterwards, in the word already quoted, verse 7, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts 
So in David's day, there was a rest. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another rest later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let, verse 11, here's our conclusion now. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is a biblical theology, a stringing together. You can see what the apostle is doing here. A stringing together of a number of biblical uh, stories in one unfolding organic theme. It's what we call biblical theology. Not just theology that's biblical, but an unfolding of a theme throughout the course of the Scripture. And in this case, it's the theme of rest. That theme is unfolded in the biblical story through four movements. Are you following me? You've probably already got them now, right? What was the first one? The seventh day, creation. God rested. He talks about that in verse 4. The second movement was Joshua and Moses, the time of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. This is what Psalm 95 was referring back to. God said, I'll bring you into the land of milk and honey, and there I will give you rest. Then in David's own day, he saw that the people still awaited a rest, according to verse 7, which is why he was still warning them that today, in his day, they should not harden their hearts against God. Why is David still waiting for a rest? Because the rest that Moses gave them, the rest that Joshua gave them, was only a picture of the rest that is yet to come. And don't be mistaken, God did give them rest. You know, don't say, well, they didn't get it. You know, they, they didn't. No, no, the Bible specifically says the Lord gave to all of Israel the land that he swore to their fathers, Joshua chapter 21, and they took possession of it and they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. So, if that's true then, if God gave them rest through Moses and Joshua, how is it that David says, today we're still waiting for that rest? And the writer of Hebrews says, because all of it was pointing forward to our day, to the day of Christ, when Christ gives the true rest that we all long for, when He brings us into the true land that really is the possession of God's people, where God lives with His people and they with Him, never to be parted again. That's what we're waiting for. The Christian life then is a lot like Israel's exodus. Out of the land of slavery, we're out of slavery to sin and the devil and death, but we're not yet in the promised land. We're not yet fully experiencing all of the rest that was purchased for us by Christ. We have it. It is ours, but yet it's not yet fully experienced. We're somewhere in, our, in your Christian life right now, you're somewhere between Egypt and Canaan. You're somewhere between baptism in the Red Sea and going through the Jordan into the Promised Land. And people used to picture crossing the Jordan as going through death. In fact, in the end of Pilgrim's Progress, he 
pictures Christian entering the celestial city through the river of death, and he almost sinks and drowns under the weight of his own sin, but it's God's promises that buoy him up, right? So we're on that path. You're right now, right now, where you are in your Christian life, you're somewhere on that journey. So so, uh, the passages of the Old Testament that teach us about Israel's journey in the wilderness and their conquest of Canaan, those have a lot to say to us in this day, if the New Testament is any guide in understanding the Old. So let's take a moment then and look at a third passage, which will take us back into the Old Testament. Obviously, we're taking a break from Matthew today. But let's go back to Exodus chapter 23 for a few moments and look at our Christian journey in the pictures and the types of the Old Testament. Remember, the New Testament apostles said that those things that happened to them were written down for us in the end of the ages. These things were for us. So we are not uh, misguided at all to take instruction from a passage like this. These passages teach us about Christ, about the gospel, and about what it means to follow the Lord. Exodus chapter 23 And uh, the text I want to look at is verses 20 to 33. Behold, the Lord says to His people through Moses, this is Israel out of Egypt, past the Red Sea. They're baptized into Moses. Now they're on their way to the promised land. He says, I will send, excuse me, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. Amen? And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention. I tell you today, listen to this. These words are to you. Pay careful attention to Him and obey His voice. Do not rebel against Him, for He will not pardon your transgression, for My name is in Him. But if you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, all those Canaanite peoples, he says, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water and I will take your sickness away from you None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. What kind, of prom- what kind of promises are these? No Israelites are going to have miscarriages anymore, right? I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom, you, uh, against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hivites before you. Hittites before you, excuse me, verse 29. I will drive them out from before you. I will not, excuse me, drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, 
For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you, and you shall make no covenant with them and their gods, and they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely become a snare to you. I want to take the principles that we just learned from these two New Testament passages, the interpretive principles, and apply those to this Old Testament passage so that we can see five lessons about our Christian life designed by God to teach us about our life in Christ. These five lessons about our battle with sin, just as surely as those Israelites battled the Canaanites, our journey from earth to heaven, five lessons to help pilgrims make progress on our celestial journey. And the first is this. The first encouraging, heart-lifting lesson we learn from this text is that the angel of the Lord is with us. The angel of Yahweh is with us. Now, the term angel, can it literally means a messenger, someone that the Lord sends on His behalf, and it can refer to a spirit being, and what we would typically refer to as an angel, and sometimes it can actually refer to a human being. I send my messenger, and, uh, and, and that can be a, a translation of this term as well. And uh, this is a messenger that the Lord is sending, but this is a very unusual angel. Look at what the, the way the angel is described in the text as Moses gave it to the people of Israel. This is a stunning description of this being. First of all, he is closely identified with God himself, Jehovah, verse 22. Take a look at the text. Again, you may want to highlight or note this. He says, Obey my voice. Um, excuse me, obey His voice, that is the voice of the angel that I'm sending, and do all that I say. Almost as if those two are parallel. As if listening to the angel was listening to God. The authority behind this angel is amazing. You listen to Him, you are hearkening to the voice of God Himself. And in fact, notice how He's referred to in verse 23. He's not just an angel... He's not just the angel, he is what? Do you see it? Verse 23. He is my angel. This is the angel of the Lord. This angel is closely identified with God. In fact, the angel of the Lord is often uh, spoken of in the Old Testament as an unusual personage. Not just any ordinary angel, something on a whole nother level. And there are two reasons in verse 21 that the Lord says, you better listen to this angel when he comes to you, Israel. One, because if you don't listen to him, quote, he will not pardon your transgression. Now, did you notice that? He will not pardon? Wait, he who? Who pardons transgressions? Remember when Jesus healed someone and He said, your sins are forgiven? The Pharisees came up to Him and they they said, wait, wait, wait. They got it, right? No human being has the right to pardon someone's sins of Himself. They said, you are taking on yourself the, the, uh, the right that only belongs to God and that is exactly the point. And so the same thing's happening with this angel. This angel has the ability to forgive sins. 
that only belongs to God. And verse 21, the end of the verse, he says, listen to this angel because my name is in him. This angel possesses the very name of God, the very character and quality and attributes of the Almighty. It is no uh, obscure thing to see this angel as none other than Jesus Christ himself leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. Say, who led them to the promised land? Was it Moses? Nope. Oh, I know, Moses died before he got there. It was Joshua, right? Nope. It was another Joshua, a new Joshua, a new Yeshua, Jesus Christ Himself who led those people. He Himself was in their midst, leading them through this scary journey, this journey fraught with danger, want, and He was encouraging them along the way. He was providing for them. And notice what this angel would do. Verse 20, here's the purpose for the angel's coming. He says, I will send him to one, guard you, and two, to bring you into the place that I have prepared for you. This is what our Lord is doing. Let me tell you, friends, listen to me. You are literally being protected and led all along your Christian journey by none other than the unseen Jesus. Jesus brings His people by guarding them and guiding them into from their life of sin all the way to their life in glory when, when He comes again and heaven comes to earth. In the middle, between Egypt and Canaan, He's there. He is there with his people. The Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Christ guards and preserves His people. Oh, how much we owe to the Savior. Not just who saved us 20 years ago when we were converted, but who keeps us every step of the way. You're a Christian today. You haven't stopped being a Christian today because Jesus has kept you. Amen? Praise the Lord Jesus. He's a faithful God. He said to Peter, Satan has desired to have you, to sift you like wheat, to cast you away like the chaff. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Oh, praise the Savior who right now is interceding at the throne of God so that you and I would not be lost, that we would not fall away from the faith. Just yesterday, we watched a video put out by Heart Cry Missionary Society this is from about 10 months ago, and they were talking about 95 pastors in Myanmar, the country that used to be called Burma back in the day. And these 95 pastors have suffered a severe test of their faith, and they have been persecuted for the cause of Christ and put into jail. 95 men leading congregations all over Myanmar. 93 of them stayed firm in their faith, and they continued to affirm that Jesus Christ was the only Savior of the world. And for that, they continued to suffer while too denied the Lord Jesus and were set free early. And we prayed last night. We went around the room and just each one of us took some time to pray for those 95. Prayed for the 93 that they would continue to stand firm in their faith and prayed for the two whose faith has faltered. And Peyton reminded us of that verse that he learned in our Sunday school here. 
about the righteous man that though he, I'm going to say it wrong, though he stumble, he will not be cast headlong. If those two men are the Lord's, now they may not be. This may be, as Paul prayed this morning, a sifting of the wheat from the tares. But if they are the Lord's, that, that he will bring them back to himself like he did with Peter. And that's what the Lord has done for you, isn't it? There have been how many times when you've been so close to just getting hardened in your sin, walking away from the Lord, maybe doubting some um, fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith to where you were almost an unbeliever, but the Lord kept you. He sent His Word to you. He affirmed your faith. He hadn't let you go yet. Amen? I, I still wake up some days and I'm, I'm amazed that and amazed and not amazed that I'm that I'm still a believer. I'm not amazed because his promises are faithful and he always does what he said he'll do and if he saves you he'll keep you to the end. But I'm I am amazed because I know the frailty of of the human heart and the depravity of 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 our minds. And so it's a wonder that the Lord preserved his people and, and brought a remnant of people. Now, many of them were unbelievers. And with these people, the Lord did sift the wheat from the tares. Right? We've been warned about that in Hebrews. But He did bring a group in and He kept them and He purified them. Even through a later um, captivity, I mean, He brought that remnant back. And, and, and really, all of that is pointing to the many who would believe, as the writers of the New Testament have said. For all of those who would truly have faith, the Lord is faithful, the Savior is with you, I want you to know that this morning. I want you to know that wherever you are on your Christian journey, okay, whatever enemies are still in Canaan in front of you, whatever sins that you're still fighting against, all of the evil of the world around us, all of the opposition that we see in our culture, in spite of all of that, wherever you are in your journey on the Christian life, the Lord Himself is guiding and leading His people and protecting them. Cast your hope on the Savior. Remember who He is. Remember how faithful He is. Remember, He's the one who never turned away until He went all the way to the end and accomplished your salvation. And He will not turn away. He'll be faithful. He will keep His people. You follow Him. You keep your hope in Him. Don't grow hard against Him. Right? We have this warning here. Don't turn your back on that angel of the Lord. Because He will not forgive. And those warnings are picked up in Hebrews. But He's there. He's keeping. He's helping. He's saving. Pilgrim's Progress, he writes about how Christian came to uh, feel this huge burden on his back. Right in the beginning of the story, remember? And a guy comes to him by the name of Evangelist. And Evangelist preaches to him the good news that he should escape from the city of destruction and he will find joy in the presence of the Lord of that place in the great celestial city. But he's got to get on this road and he's got to run to the wicket gate. And he runs off and he goes up to the gate. And at the gate there is someone whom he meets whose name is Christian Bunyan says his name is Goodwill. And Goodwill reaches out and yanks him in. And because Beelzebub, the lord of that bad area, is firing his flaming darts to try to take him down before he even gets in the gate to begin his journey. But praise God, goodwill brings him in. And in the end, second part, I don't know if you've read the second part of the story, Pilgrim's Progress has a part two, and he tells you very clearly that goodwill is none other than the Savior himself. 
It wasn't us that pulled ourselves to God. It was Christ who did. And He begins that work and He's going to walk with us all along the way. And the Lord does. He's so good. He was good to His people, the people of Israel. He was good to them in types and shadows and pictures. And He is good to us in the midst of our struggling, fighting the Canaanites of our sin and dodging the fiery darts of the devil. He says, I am with you. I'm with you today to guard you and to lead you. And along that line, another great encouragement in this passage is that the battle is the Lord's. Look at what the text says. This is amazing. Look at verse 22, for example. 22. I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. I will drive these people out. Verse 27, I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people who, to, uh, against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. It's not a very hard fight when all the enemies turn their backs and run away, right? It's like somebody else did the fighting for you and that's what the Lord says. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to come in there and I'm going to show these people how strong I am so that by the time you get there, they're just going to be ready to flee. And that's exactly, of course, what happened in some cases very uh, poignantly. Um, remember when the spies went into Jericho and they met the harlot, uh, Rahab? She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and the fear of you has fallen upon us so that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and how what he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Gog, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there's no spirit left in any of us. For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. (laughs) It's happened exactly like he said, didn't it? The Lord fought the battle. The Lord won the battles. The Lord was the one who gave them the conquest of the land. He said, I will send my fear upon those people, and he did. And he still does today. James chapter 2 says it, right? Even the demons, when they think about who Christ is, they what? They tremble with fear. You believe that today? I know sometimes in your Christian journey, okay, when you're on the path, you're facing the temptations, you're facing Beelzebub in the way, you're facing this giant despair, in Doubting Castle, you're facing all of these enemies. It seems like the battle is far from over. That the enemies are too great. That your sin is just too stubborn. The Lord says to you, I will win the war. (laughs) Even the walls of Jericho trembled before God Almighty, didn't they? Not only the people, but the walls. And that's the way the Lord is. When He shows His mighty arm, all of heaven and earth will flee away. No one can stand in the presence of the Almighty God. And He is fighting on your behalf. In verse 28, He said, I'm going to send my hornets into that land and chase them all away. You ever been chased by a hornet? (laughs) Found out how fast you could run, didn't you? What does he mean? I don't know what he meant. Did he send literal hornets into Canaan at that time and we don't have any record of it in any other place, perhaps? Or was he talking figuratively? I don't know. But the meaning is clear. He's going to send these people a packin', and, and he did. He won 
the victory for the people of Israel. All of this to say this, okay, if the battle is the Lord's, if the battle against the wickedness of the world that we are living out together as a church, if that battle is the Lord's, we're on the winning side. Amen? Okay? If the battle against your sin and your temptations, if the Lord is going to fight those battles, if He is going to sanctify you, you need not fear. You need not be overcome with the strength of the enemy. You need to take heart and believe. That's where, what it really comes down to. You must, listen to me, you must believe in the possibility of genuine holiness in your life. Not say, well, I'm just muddling along, struggling with my anger, and it's just the way I'm always going to be. Just muddling along with my sin the best I can. No! Believe that He can and will defeat your enemies. Isn't that exactly what He called on these people to do? He said, go into the land and take it. And they sent spies in and some came back and said, we don't, we don't believe it. The enemies are too big. Now, if you're a believer, you will see the victory of the Lord on your behalf. So fight with hope. Fight your sin. Fight the temptations. Live out your Christian journey with hope. You ought to get into the battle and listen to the old soldiers. I mean, the guys who are battle-hardened, who've got the scars to show for it, who, who've gone into the, into the trenches and done war over the last 60 years with their sin and with the forces of darkness in this culture and in this world, with the enemy's hold over the hearts of unbelieving people. And these, pe- these men have done great battle and they've been beaten up and they've had their share of hardships, but they'll tell you at the end of their life, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. The battle is the Lord's. Trust it and be encouraged. Number three, God sends His angel. His angel will lead and protect. The battle is His. The Lord will drive out your enemies. However, the victory will be intentionally incremental. The victory will be intentionally incremental. And that's what I want you to see in verses 29 and 30. Again, take a look at verse 29 and 30. The Lord says to Israel something very interesting. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. That's what the Israel would want. Go into the land, God makes all their enemies get scared, run away, and then they just kind of have to go from village to village, do some kind of mop up and and kind of, you know, take over the, take over the villages, you know, start planting new crops, and, and in a year it'll all be over, and we can finally be re- at rest. Yes. God says, no, I'm not going to do it in a year. God said, little by little, verse number, uh, let's, let's pick up in the middle of verse 29, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the wild beasts multiply against you. Verse 30, little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess.
the land. No doubt Israel was asking the same thing your children ask on that drive. When are we going to get there? When will it be over? When can we rest? When is the journey done? How long do we have to fight? Why does victory come so slowly? And maybe you've asked that question sometimes. Why does victory come so slowly? Missionaries who are laboring away on the front lines are struggling with entrenched unbelief all around them. And they say, why does the kingdom grow so slowly? Why does the darkness get pushed back so incrementally? And the Lord told us, even from the beginning, even in picture form, He told us that that's the way it will be between Egypt and Canaan. It's little by little, incremental victory being realized. These people would not come in and immediately take possession of the land. The land would become wild. They weren't ready for that. But I want you to know this, that the incremental nature of your growth as a Christian is not purposeless. The Lord has intentionally working out the victory of your Christian life slowly over the course of your life. He's doing this intentionally. He says it to them. He says it to us. He says it to us here in the end of the ages. This victory will come, but it will come incrementally. I think, you know, why does the Lord do it that way? Maybe you could come up with some good answers. Why doesn't the Lord just save you and give you immediate victory over every sin you've ever struggled with before, that you were enslaved to? Immediate, all of your enemies turn and they run and you never ever see them again. You say, yeah, that's what I want. That's exactly what I want. And then, of course, that's what we want. I don't know all of the reasons why the Lord does it, but I can guess at some. You know, I believe that grace... God's grace becomes more amazing when you discover it little by little by little, new and fresh every single day over the course of your life. When you can look back 10 years on as a Christian, 15, 20 years on as a Christian, when you can look back and see over the course of your life a process of maturing, and growing, and strengthening, and your faith being stretched, and tested, and falling, and failing, and getting up, and growing, and grace coming in, and renewing, and you're growing stronger, and you see progress over the course of your life. I think there's somehow in all of that, grace is magnified. I think you learn throughout the course of this struggle to depend on God like you never would otherwise. To pray, I mean in earnest, God save me. Sanctify me. Let us see the gospel go forth. Break down in the, the, the strongholds of darkness. Let us see this. It makes you get on your knees and pray like you never... To commune with God in the way that He wants you to come to know Him. That would never happen if you were saved in a moment and sanctified in an instant and glorify the next day. I mean, the Lord in His wisdom, in His infinite wisdom, decided to manifest His salvation as a once-for-all promise in Jesus Christ, but realized over the course of a lifetime until it's finally consummated 
when you see the Savior in person. We learn to depend, pray, to commune with God in ways I think that we would not unless we had to persevere. And so as Christians, we see the gospel advance, but it advances incrementally. As Jesus said it, the kingdom of Christ, kingdom of God is like a little seed that's planted. Just a little thing, but it grows and it grows and little there's a shoot and then the shoot gets bigger and then the branches come off and then it grows and grows until it's a tree that the birds of the air can come and nest in. He says it's like a little tiny bit of yeast that's put into a lump of dough. And you, you, if you've ever made bread, you don't, you don't, you're not ready to put it in the oven the instant you put the yeast in. You're going to sit there and you wait, right? Sometimes you let it sit out overnight or you sit it up in the windowsill. I don't know what you do. I don't bake. But, you know, you let it sit around and you let the yeast do its thing and it grows and, and, it, and, and the, the thing gets bigger. This is the way the kingdom grows. It's incrementally. This is the way God ordained it. He ordained it on your life in, in the little arc of your Christian life and in the arc of the growth of the kingdom of God over the course of human history. I mean, I tell you one thing, we're at a place today in human history that's unlike anything that Israel ever knew in terms of the gospel's advance in the world to all of the nations. I mean, the gospel, the kingdom is growing, but, it's, but this is the way the Lord does it. If you're struggling, listen to me, if you're struggling with that stubborn sin, do not doubt that God is at work little by little. So persevere, stay in the fight. You're laboring to build the kingdom. Don't be discouraged at slow progress. Remember God's intent. Remember that it is not pointless. Victory is secure, but it's slow to be realized. It is secure as long as you follow Christ. Now, of course, God's fighting for Israel. Remember, the battle is the Lord's and it'll surely happen, but it doesn't mean that Israel itself never had to pick up a sword. I said before, he was going to send his hornets and drive all the people away. And we have testimony from the Old Testament. He, he literally fought their battles for them, right? They marched around Jericho. They never, God knocked the walls down. I mean, how, do you, how much more do you want to see that God's the one who's doing the battle? And yet, there were plenty of times Israel had to pick up the sword and go out and fight. And it was hard and they were going to get bloody. And, and, and they, it was going to, it was going to be, uh, 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 something that they were going to have to be intentional about, which brings us to this, that we must be actively involved. That's the fourth thing we learn from this text about our fight in the Christian life. Our struggle on this journey from Egypt to Canaan is that we must be actively involved. You see this in verses 25 and 26. He says, you shall not serve, um, excuse me, you shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your... I'm sorry, let me see. I got ahead of myself. Look at verse 24 now. Verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. You shall not do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and you shall break the pillars, uh, their pillars in pieces. Israel still had to go out and do something. They had to get some guy with a big battering ram to go smash down these idols. They had to get somebody with a sword to go out and fight their enemies. Look at verse 31, the beginning of the verse. Little by little... Excuse me, verse 31. I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give you the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. God says, I will give them to you. But then he says, you shall drive them out. So I want to know, did God drive out the Canaanites or did Israel drive out the Canaanites? 
And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> right, that's the, that's the whole point. They were doing it, but it was God doing it through them, which is exactly what, what uh, fighting our sin, furthering the kingdom of Christ is in this world. It is us doing it very actively. No Christian should ever say, well, God's going to make sure I get sanctified, so I just don't need to bother with it. I'll just wait till He sanctifies me. Uh, if He wants me to be holy, He'll just make me holy. If He wants me to repent, He'll just give me repentance. If He wants me to serve Him, He'll just make service happen. No, every single one of us should feel keenly our responsibility to get up and be active in fighting the enemy, taking ground, moving forward, progressing toward the land of Canaan, doing what He commands us to do, knowing that it is Him that is working in us both to will and to do all of His good pleasure. May we never rest, but always be active. He says in verse 32, don't make any covenant with them, kick them out of the land, put them to the sword, drive them out. You know, there is a strong temptation to make peace with your enemies when conquest comes so incrementally. Are you with me? When conquest is intentionally incremental, the temptation is strong to just make a treaty with the people who are still there. And of course, that's exactly what Israel struggled with. And so much of the trouble that Israel had was because they allowed these pagan peoples to stay in their land. And the pagan peoples led them into sexual promiscuity and child sacrifice, worshiping of wood and stone. He says to the people, you need to be active, involved. Don't quit until the job is done. And let me tell you today, friends, I tell you, this was written for your benefit to tell you this, don't ever make a truce with your sin. Don't ever come to the point where you say, you know what, this is just kind of the way I'm going to be. Just kind of get used to the fact that you're going to have bad thoughts or be an angry person or be a worrier or use bad language or have a lack of love for others around you. It's just kind of the way you are. It's just, no. No, let us always be active, ever taking ground, believing in the promises of God. Sometimes we say to ourselves, well, a little bit of sin isn't bad. I'm, I'm a lot better than I could be. <laughs> I'm a lot better than a lot of Christians I know. How tempting it was for Israel to say, well, a few Canaanites aren't bad. That won't hurt anything. And those Canaanites suck them right back down. And in fact, their willingness to preserve the Canaanites in some cases showed that some of them weren't even believers. Now, may it always be that we are faithful in pursuing holiness and pressing forth the kingdom of Christ into this world. But when they did that, they were blessed. And the Lord promised a great and glorious end of their journey. He said, now let me encourage you. You're getting ready right now. This is Exodus, right? They haven't gone in yet. They haven't conquered anybody. 
They're just getting told about what's going to happen. Right, you've gotten out of Egypt. Woo! Praise God. Amen. We're free. We're not slaves anymore. You've been baptized. Praise God. Now you're going to go to the promised land. You've got a lot of journey to go through, but let me tell you about the end as a way to encourage you. And the last thing we learn from this text is that the end is glorious. In fact, it's so glorious, it's hard to see how these words could be fulfilled in all of their fullness except in Christ and in the age to come, really, because he says there will be an abundance of provision. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. He said there'll be no more sickness. And you won't, as I said earlier, no more miscarriages. <laughs> when did that get fulfilled? When Israel, you know, in, in what, what year B.C. did all sickness go away? Right? So you can see embedded, even in the promises, is a vision of something yet to come. That's the way the whole Old Testament is. It says something. It says something very true, but it says it and couches it in such terminology that that sees beyond itself um, to the age of Christ. And so he's saying, friends, for all of us, for the age to come, there is there is no end to the provision of God. There's no more hunger. There's no more thirst. You think of how much of the world hungers right now. How much of the world is still in need right now? How much pain and suffering and death there is? Some of you know the pain of miscarriages. Some of you know the pain of the death of loved ones and friends and people that you cherished. There's no more sickness. There is only long life and eternity. These promises sound a whole lot like the the promise attached to the fifth commandment that, that, that your days will be long upon the earth. You'll be abundant. It'll be blessed. Everything will be great. And that's the way it will be in the end of our journey, friend. Right now, I know the struggle is hard. The world around you is no friend to grace. Your flesh is still hanging on. That's, there's that sin that clings so closely. We're told to put it off. And every day you get up and you battle that, that old world and the flesh and the devil. But the end, the end is coming. And the end... Let me tell you what the end is. The end is when you finally experience the fullness of the rest that is already yours in Christ. That end's coming. And it's going to be an end that will be more glorious than you can imagine. Pilgrim's Progress reminds us that the Christian life is a journey. And on that journey there are many obstacles, many enemies. Christian faces the the slew of despond and giant despair and doubting castle. Some of you are going to face doubts and discouragements. He faced the wiles of Mr. Legality and Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And some of us are going to face friends and acquaintances who give us counsel that runs contrary to God's word. Some of you, your friends are living for the vapors of this life. There was the dangerous pragmatism of Mr. By-ends. We're going to be tempted with all kinds of pragmatic shortcuts that sort of ignore what God says because this seems to work better. Pilgrim faced all of the many and varied temptations of Vanity Fair. 
And this world will tempt you with all of the vanities, all of the pleasures that you can buy. You all are rich people. Don't get, don't be mistaken. I'm not very rich. You're pretty rich in comparison to all of the people of all of history. And you could buy a whole lot. You could buy vacations, and you could buy cars, and you could buy stuff, and you could buy pleasure. Don't be lulled into living for this world, he says. Therefore, the fearful attacks of the monster Apollyon in the Valley of Humiliation and what Christian hasn't known in his darkest hours, what could be described as nothing less than almost a satanic oppression. There was the persecution under Lord Hategood who threw Christian into the cage. Right? And so many Christians today, like the brothers in Myanmar I mentioned, are literally in jail for the cause of their faith. And Christians face that all over. And finally, there was the fearful crossing of the river of death before the celestial city, the guilt of Christian sins almost drowning him before he remembered the promises of God. He fought and he failed. He walked and he fell, but he persevered. And this is what the Lord called the people of Israel to do all through their wilderness and wandering and into the, the especially the conquest of the land to persevere. Little by little, I will drive them out. That's where you are. That's where you are right now. You're in that place between Egypt and Canaan. That little by little, I'm driving them out. You're being sanctified. The gospel's going forth. The work of Christ is, is going and, uh, and he calls on you to be faithful, to be active, to trust him, to recognize that Christ is with you. So stay in the fight. Maybe some of you have grown weary in the fight. And right now you've set your sword down and you're just kind of floating along. You're just kind of letting the enemy have the battle for a little while. You've grown weary in the journey. Instead of walking every day forward in your faith, you just kind of sat down. Am I talking to you? Is the Lord Jesus talking to you? Come on, listen. He says, don't give up. Don't stop pressing forward. Take ground. Get up tomorrow and pray that ground may be taken tomorrow. You can press forward into the rest that is still awaits the people of God. Continue to strive. And if you continue to strive, then in the end, you will fully experience the rest that is already yours in Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, give us faith to persevere Give us strength to fight sin, temptation, the evil of the world around us. The devil is our adversary and his work is so strong in the world, but we know that he is a defeated foe. Give us faith to believe it. Please lift up the drooping hands. Please strengthen the weak knees. Please help your people to endure, looking to Jesus the author and the perfecter of their faith. In His name.
Amen.